This is a special episode of Cold Steel. The Canadian Association of General Surgeons, or CAGS, is the national organization that unites general surgeons across Canada. And normally we have a national meeting every year that brings together surgeons from across the country uh, at our meeting that's called the Canadian Surgical Forum, or CSF. Uh, But unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this was obviously not possible this year. But in lieu of that, we were lucky enough to have a virtual CAGS meet week on a variety of topics from the perennial favorite of Alone in the Night, difficult scenarios in ACS, to the COVID-19 elective surgery crisis, to diversity and health outcomes research. All of these sessions were recorded and put on the CAGS website, and I would encourage all of our listeners to check those out. I was lucky enough to be able to present and moderate at one of those sessions for the meet week on a topic that I'm passionate about, which is the morbidity and mortality rounds or M&M conferences. As always, I would love to get your comments, feedback, and suggestions. And once again, I'd encourage everyone to go to the CAGS uh, website uh, where you can check out all of their sessions. In addition, they have uh, seminars uh, every month and all of them are excellent and I would encourage all of you to listen to them. Good afternoon. And welcome everyone to our uh, webinar today. I'm super excited uh, to be able to present um, uh, our, our seminar today on revitalizing the Morbidity and Mortality Conference. My name is uh, Amir Farouk. I'm a colorectal fellow at uh, St. Paul's Hospital. And I'm very, very, very excited to be having, uh, to be moderating the session and uh, to have a fantastic group of panelists uh, joining me today, and, and I hope that this can lead to some really lively discussion and, and uh, conversation across the country. Of course, we always miss the the in-person um, meeting that we have every year uh, with the CSF, but uh, in lieu of that, I'm hoping that uh, at least we can connect uh, virtually, and I've really enjoyed uh, the last uh, few talks that we've had over this last week, so I, I hope we can continue that uh, trend tonight. While we're, while we're still waiting for uh, any last-minute stragglers that might be uh, logging on to the session, I will just introduce our three panelists today. So I'm so lucky to be joined by uh, Dr. Chelsea Harris. Dr. Harris is a general surgery resident at the University of Maryland. She completed her Bachelor's of Science at Brown University and earned her medical degree at the University of Vermont College of Medicine. During a two-year research fellowship at the University of Michigan, she also earned a Master's of Science in Health Services Research. Her academic interests center on how to better understand the needs of diverse patient populations and the clinical cohort that treats them and is one of the founding members of the now famous cultural cultural complications curriculum. Um, And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how we can maybe incorporate cultural complications into our our weekly uh, or monthly M&M rounds. I'm also very lucky to have uh, Dr. Christian Finley join us today. Dr. Finley is a thoracic surgeon at McMaster University. Dr. Finley trained in general surgery at UBC in Vancouver and therefore, and thereafter completed his training in thoracic surgery at, in Toronto. After completing advanced training in Belgium and England, he started working at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton in 2010. He completed his master's of public health at Harvard University. And since joining the faculty of thoracic surgery at McMaster, he's been awarded hundreds of thousands of dollars in research funding for his active research programs, particularly in thoracic surgery quality improvement. Um, And according to his own bio, he is uh, the proud father of three crazy girls. Um, And he's going to talk to us today about incorporating a data-driven approach to M&M rounds. 
And lastly, we have Dr. Murat Hamid, doctor, uh, and of course, he, he needs no introduction to this uh, audience. Uh, Dr. Hamid, as uh, many of you will know, is a trauma surgeon and intensivist at the Vancouver General Hospital and an assistant professor of surgery at the University of British Columbia. He completed medical school and surgical residency at the University of Alberta, graduate studies at Harvard, and fellowships in trauma surgery and surgical critical care at the University of Miami. He spent three years on surgical faculty at the University of Calgary before moving to Vancouver and is the head of uh, UBC and VGH Division of General Surgery. And he's going to be speaking with us on um, really how we can move into the M&Ms of the future and uh, in creating learning health systems. And I'm just going to start my presentation here. So thank you once again for joining us on, on this evening. And we're going to be talking about revitalizing the morbidity and mortality conference. I have no disclosures. Uh, so just as an outline for today, <clears throat> uh, we're going to talk a little bit. Uh, and, and my goal for my presentation is to just give you a bit of a, a background and set the stage for, for why we're even talking about this uh, as, as a topic on CAGS Week 2020. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the background and history of uh, the Morbidity and Mortality Conference. I'm going to interchangeably call this M&M rounds. Um, really talk about some of the challenges to the traditional uh, M&M rounds and talk a little bit very briefly about um, the successes and saved rounds that we put on in Calgary as uh, complementary or alternative rounds and then really move to the, the exciting part of the evening, which is to hear our panelists' presentations. So as many of you will know, uh, the M&M rounds really originated with Dr. Ernest Codman. Dr. Codman was a surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital uh, in, in Boston, uh, sort of in the early 20th century. And, uh, you know, he was way ahead of his time and really a visionary. And one of the things Dr. Codman started doing with all his patients is collating what he called the end results. And what was really unique about what the end results was is that he would document sort of very briefly the patient's clinical presentation, the operation that they went to, and followed them uh, to at least a year out to see what their outcomes were. And despite doing things that we, we now uh, perceive as being very kind of normal and uh, standard of care, he was vilified by his colleagues at MGH and was actually uh, kicked off the faculty. And, and he went on to found his own um, hospital, which he had uh, dubbed the very imaginative name, the End Results Hospital. And he continued to uh, uh, collect data on the patients that he saw and, and the end results that they had. And, and many famous surgeons ended up actually joining his hospital, including Dr. Cushing. So here's an example of uh, the cases that he would um, uh, collate and, uh, and uh, collect. So case number 90, on January 27, 1913, uh, stout female, abdominal pain, uh, of, uh, of 12 hours duration, pre-op diagnosis, subacute appendicitis. Uh, operation was an appendectomy. Appendix showed evidence of a previous attack, but no sign of acute inflammation. Complications, none, although he editorializes and says error in diagnosis. Uh, results, August 1913, well, August 18th, 1915, so two years later, now has symptoms of gallstones. Operation advised, scar solid. And what's really uh, amazing about this is a couple of things. One is that, uh, you know, his, uh, his presentation of missed or, or misdiagnosis of appendicitis still sounds very plausible today. And two, um, that he links the, op the uh, error in, in diagnosis to a post-operative complication, which is that the patient required a, another operation two years later. 
Um, and one of the, the, the cases that I find most amazing that he documented was case number 77, which was where he ligated the hepatic duct and where he himself makes his comments. And remember that these comments are all published in an annual report of the hospital. So these are publicly available reports. And he wrote, I had made an error of skill of the most gross character and even during the operation failed to recognize that I had made it. And, and this just strikes me as incredible humility. So we fast forward today to the modern M&M rounds. And really this has expanded beyond surgery to pediatrics, internal medicine, obstetrics and gynecology, pharmacy, uh, you name it, people are using M&M rounds. And really it's a, a core component of surgical training. And it's actually mandated today by uh, ACGME. And there's, there's a whole host of literature that's actually grown up around the morbidity and mortality conference. And in fact, M&Ms have permeated culture so far as to even penetrate main, mainstream media as demonstrated by this Grey's Anatomy's clip. Uh, yes, let's get back to this uh, patient's need for an emergent transplant. You're saying that his left ventricle had been weakened by the LVAD malfunction? His left ventricle was weakened by the fact that he suffered from congestive heart failure. Oh, come on, Dr. Burke. We all know the LVAD was cut by an intern. Oh, I'm going to my happy place. The exact chain of events remain unclear. It remains unclear to you because you were in the ER with a gunshot wound. Why aren't we hearing from Dr. Bailey? She was the senior physician on the case. I am the attendant on record. Yes, I was the resident in charge. Dr. Burke has summarized the medical facts of this case. Are there any questions for me? I think my heart rate is uh, picked up at least <laughs> an additional 10 uh, beats per minute just watching that clip. But uh, certainly the, the clip captures many of the, the sort of the emotional aspects of, of M&M rounds that we've all, I think, come to understand and, and appreciate. So what do M&M rounds look like across the board uh, in 2020? So uh, what I would say is that it's extremely heterogeneous and very different depending on the institution that you go to. Um, and, and that varies across every single component of M&M rounds. So from the goals to the structure, to the frequency of M&M rounds, to the number of cases, to the participants that are in the rounds. So uh, of note, you know, uh, it's, it's not uh, often that other specialties are, are included, although 60% uh, of the cases reviewed in this uh, narrative review uh, did have included nurses. But again, participants are very heterogeneous. Who's presenting the cases is very heterogeneous. How these cases are selected is extremely heterogeneous, whether it's even uh, morbidity or mortality sometimes varies depending on the institution. And interestingly, um, only 20% of the studies reviewed in this narrative review uh, found that uh, there was a structured literature review as part of the M&M round. So the way that we do M&M rounds today is extremely heterogeneous and diverse. And really that, that starts to beg the question and really what prompted our session tonight, which is what are M&Ms good for anyways? Are they an educational platform? In which case uh, I would argue that they're extremely heterogeneous in the case selection and the very unstructured format makes it difficult to actually have some distinct learning points for trainees. 
Um, is it a quality improvement effort? In, in which case, you know, I, uh, it's, it's hard to make a, a strong case for quality improvement when you don't have uh, consistent data collection and reporting, which I think is often the case with MM rams and backed up by the literature in this area. Is it a method of error analysis on in the individual or systemic level, uh, but less than 10% of, of M&Ms uh, that uh, are reviewed in the literature actually employed a structured method of error analysis? Is there an individual or system-wide impact? Uh, and I would argue from the M&M rounds that I've gone to and the, and the many people that I've talked to that the impact is often quite limited, particularly because uh, it's very limited who's in the room. When, when it's limited to the surgical faculty and residents and trainees, then uh, this, the system level impacts often can be quite limited. And there are many competing challenges in 2020, um, you know, in terms of attendance for busy clinicians, and then uh, the blame aspect of it that we've sort of highlighted with that Gray's Anatomy clip. Um, but I'm hoping that today that, that we can actually um, show that the M&M rounds are really a vital part of our uh, surgical quality and surgical systems, and that there are a number of ways that we can really revitalize our M&M rounds uh, going forward. And I'm uh, delighted to have uh, Dr. Chelsea Harris, Dr. Christian Finley, and Dr. Murad Hamid join me today to talk about various ways uh, that they have uh, tried to uh, implement changes for quality improvement and, and M&M rounds in their institutions. Um, I'm going to talk briefly about one variation that we did in Calgary, which was the SNS rounds or successes and uh, uh, saves, uh, uh, successes and saves conference. Um, and I, I can't take credit for um, originating this idea. I actually saw it on Twitter. Uh, Kevin Kneary is a, a vascular surgeon in the U.S., and he he wrote on Twitter, um, "This is a common sentiment in surgery that that surgery is quite humbling." And we beat ourselves up over our failures, both personally and formally at M&Ms. And we need to do a better job of celebrating the many wins that we have. And when I'm in charge, we will have SNS conference successes and saves. And um, I, I felt really inspired by that. And uh, the faculty at the Peter Lougheed Hospital were uh, in Calgary were very gracious and allowed me uh, the latitude and the leeway to try this. So our SNS rounds were held at the same time as our regular M&M rounds with the same audience, which consisted of surgical faculty, uh, residents and uh, medical students. And we, ch we chose to highlight two cases. The first was a case of a 91-year-old comorbid male with diverticulitis and septic shock. And really the discussion focused around uh, the fact that sometimes we cannot predict who's going to do well. Uh, and despite the fact that, uh, you know, the anesthetist actually called us into the operating room and uh, did an echo while the patient was still awake and said, you know, this person's ejection fraction is 20%. What are we doing here? Uh, and that highlighted a whole other host of, of discussion points uh, about how we deal with colleagues and uh, how that discussion should go forward at uh, one or two in the morning um, and, and really focused on our ability to assess perioperative risk and uh, generated some really good discussion from all the faculty. And the second was to highlight um, some new technical skills and technical ways of approaching an operation. Uh, so another geriatric uh, ACS case was presented of a 95 year old male uh, with a closed loop adhesive small bowel obstruction who was taken to the operating room by a new faculty surgeon. Uh, who performed the laparoscopic lysis adhesions and a totally uh, intracorporeal anastomosis. And again, generated some really good discussion about technical points, uh, whether this was a good idea or not, uh, although it, it went very well. And again, highlighted some really different aspects, I think, of decision-making than a traditional M&M rounds. 
So, uh, you know, we, we didn't have the opportunity to study this systematically, but um, overwhelmingly there, there seemed to be a positive response. Um, and I think, uh, as I said, the SNS rounds really allowed the audience uh, to learn from the decision-making and technique of others and celebrated our unexpected successes, shifting our attention from avoiding morbidity and mortality to really trying to achieve excellence. And, I, and it reminded me of the, the, the shortest poem in the English language, which was by Muhammad Ali, which was me, we, and really, uh, I think, highlighted the shift of culture to try uh, to move towards uh, a group effort towards the highest levels of uh, success. I did get some uh, feedback that this is the most millennial thing ever to talk about successes and saves. And, uh, and what I would say is that this has been well studied uh, and uh, Stephen Kramer and Teresa Amabile, who are two uh, well-known psychologists, studied this and published their um, findings in the Harvard Business Review. And they actually did a longitudinal study of workers uh, looking at their inner life and they would, they would send them um, surveys at the end of each day. And what they found is that little small wins, so small areas of progress that uh, people had were the most likely things to actually prompt people to have their best day ever. It was the most common triggering event for a best day. So celebrating these little small wins could actually change and shift the meaning of what people were doing uh, and really change culture. And, and I think that is ultimately what I was trying to do with, with the SNS rounds. Uh, obviously, there are many future directions that this could be taken. And one of these, I think, uh, is was highlighted by recent uh, Annals of Surgery publication, uh, actually just this year, uh, where they used the concept of resiliency engineering uh, and used a similar methodology where they actually reviewed all the cases that had been performed over the last week. And really interestingly and importantly, uh, took that into a forward-facing perspective where they actually uh, talked about all their upcoming cases. And I really see that as an important aspect of our rounds going forward, where we can actually start to predict difficult, complicated cases um, and, uh, and use that to have a proactive approach rather than dealing with the morbidity and mortality afterwards. Um, so that's all I have to say to, ju to just try and set the scene. Uh, and uh, uh, we'll start with Dr. Murad Hamid's uh, presentation. I just want to once again um, thank uh, Karen Norris, who has been a huge uh, influence in making this uh, Meet Week a success. Uh, she's been the real driver behind this at the Canadian Association of General Surgeons. Um, I, I will also say that this uh, webinar will be uh, available to the uh, listeners of the Cold Steel podcast on your iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast uh, RSS feed. Um, and I'd love to continue this discussion uh, on Twitter, via email, uh, either to myself or to the uh, CAG's Twitter handle. And with that, I'll, uh, I'll stop my presentation and, uh, and we can key up uh, Dr. Murad Hamid. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I'm actually uh, honored and thrilled to, to be invited to this uh, event uh, and um, uh, so happy to see so many friends uh, in the participants column, uh, friends and family. Uh, it's great to see everybody. Um, and. Uh, and I miss you all. I wish we could meet in person. Um, and Amir, thank you for that lead up. That was uh, a summary of the M&M conference that um, I can hardly improve on. Um, so uh, I always look forward to going to M&Ms. Um, I, I see it as a, a sort of a, a participation in, in an age old uh, time honored tradition. And uh, uh, the conversations are always excellent. Um, I think that uh, 
you know, in other in other areas of uh, healthcare, um, we have sometimes structured debriefings. Um, I know in the ICU, the nurses get together and debrief when they have moral distress, uh, and it's often like a big uh, event and often a tearful event. Um, but I noticed that uh, surgeons uh, don't really um, have those sorts of um, uh, of meetings, and um, it's a uh, the burden obviously of, of decision-making um, are great and the successes are, are so extraordinary and the failures are so devastating and it's a lot for people to shoulder. But I often think that our form of debriefing and coping is by discussing cases uh, and decisions with each other and reflecting on outcomes together. So there's an intangible benefit of morbidity and mortality conference, which is to sort of to strengthen the bond and, and culture and support of, uh, of surgical care. Um, but that said, uh, I've always had a few frustrations with M&Ms, um, and Amir, you pointed out them out so beautifully. Uh, M&Ms, uh, we always like pick two or three cases. We get through about two cases. Um, it's sometimes frustrating to think about how those cases are are chosen. Um, uh, you know, you get the sense that you're just um, shining the, a flashlight in the darkness, and that there's a, a big denominator that that you don't. Get to see or or consider, and sometimes you wonder um, if you're really getting a picture of the performance of your surgical system. Um, and uh, uh, beyond that, um, sometimes the the discussions are meandering, um, the recommendations are imprecise, and um, uh, the action on those recommendations is often inconsistent. And uh, we always see you know the same sorts of things. Um, sometimes the most dramatic uh, events, um, and uh, whether they're, whether we have the leverage to action any of them uh, is always kind of left in doubt at the end of the hour. Um, we did this, um, this uh, narrative systematic review uh, that we published in the CJS last year and uh, just to try to explore what the state of the art of M&M conferences is. And uh, Amir, you summarized this uh, already really well, but um, in that narrative process, we came uh, across uh, five themes of M&M uh, conferences. Um, and these relate to their educational role and their role in quality improvement. Um, so um, M&Ms are thought to have educational value. Uh, they're thought to be a good forum for error analysis, um, that they, they rely on good case selection and representation. Um, and they're also dependent on attendance and dissemination or knowledge translation. And um, each of the um, 20 or so papers that we reviewed uh, came up with some interventions to optimize one or more of these themes, um, such as standardizing presentations or taking an error analysis approach um, to morbidity and mortality, um, to select cases comprehensively, uh, for example, from databases, um, and to improve faculty attendance and uh, resident attendance, and to figure out ways to disseminate the knowledge that's gleaned from these sessions. Um, so that, that was uh, inspiring to see that people have thought about this and thought about um, thought of ways to make it better. Um, and I think that uh, uh, one of the things that comes from this is how inextricably linked quality and education are. Um, sometimes our hospital administrators, they tell us that they don't really care about residency training or the time we spend teaching. And yet uh, education is so fundamental to quality and system performance that um, it it's it's um it's hard to see how these are these are not um, totally um, synergistic and and inextric inextricably linked. 
still though, you get the feeling at, at M&Ms that you're trying to find leverage to um, change very complex systems. And uh, to, to get truly meaningful change on some things you know, requires um, coordination of many different inputs. And uh, it doesn't, in, in the end, require a change in culture. We often hear that it's impossible to change the culture of an organization that is too daunting a task. But um, I was very inspired by this book, um, uh, The Culture Code. Uh, one of the stories in The Culture Code is, um, is about uh, Coach Greg Popovich of the San Antonio Spurs. And um, one thing about, uh, that they say about Coach Pop is that if you look at his teams, the Spurs over the previous decades, um, and you predict their win-loss record and their success in the playoffs by the salaries of their players or by the performance of their players individually, um, he, the, their, their performance always exceeds or excels their predicted performance. And that's again, based on income or based on, on individual player performance. And so the idea is Coach Popovich creates a culture in which uh, the sum of the me's is greater than the, and the, than the we, that the sum, sum of the parts is, 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 uh, is greater than the whole, or the sum of the whole is, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, sorry. And so how does Coach Popovich do this? And it's all about creating a culture that allows um, uh, players to play together, um, uh, excuse me, sorry, to, um, uh, to uh, uh, fulfill their individual potential and also to fulfill their collective potential. And you can see that this is the graph of uh, Coach Popovich's performance um, uh, in wins compared to um, other, uh, other excellent coaches. So how do we, how do we um, engage with that, uh, with that uh, uh, complexity when we try to improve the, um, the uh, performance of our systems? Um, well, um, we, we decided in Vancouver to take sort of a holistic approach to, to um, surgical system performance. And um, in particular, um, we wanted to uh, uh, begin to start with the why, like why do we do things? And from there, we thought it would become clear uh, about uh, how we do those things and then ultimately what we do. So um, the idea is instead of trying to optimize some outcome like wound infections or urinary tract infections, that's kind of a what. Um, more fundamentally, we wanted to ask, um, what, what is the underlying motivator for this? At a very basic and fundamental level, why do we do the things we do? And we thought we, we could find inspiration from that type of reflection uh, to make those other questions about how and what more easy. Um, for, we, we came up with a vision statement for our division. Um, I think for any group of surgeons, the, the, the vision or the priority that would make it to the top of any list is clinical excellence. When you get a group, of, a room full of surgeons to say that they prioritize clinical excellence above anything else, then suddenly you have uh, buy-in in writing uh, about performance. And so you can say, well, you want to be excellent, but how do you know you're excellent? How rigorously have you examined your excellence? Are we average or are we truly excellent? And what are the, what are the benchmarks of that excellence uh, that, that, that we should strive to? Another way of looking at values is um, from uh, provincial and national organizations. And according to the BC Safety and Quality Council, um, the value of a health system is based on um, these aspects, safety, effectiveness, appropriateness, efficiency, but also access, equity, and respect. So you can see that there's clinical elements to a high value surgical system or healthcare system, but there's also cost related 
um, uh, priorities and also cultural priorities. So now we're kind of moving beyond sort of individual clinical measures to thinking about the culture of care. So morbidity and mortality conferences are an essential element of um, a system of surgical excellence, but, and I, I think they're an indispensable part of it um, for the reasons that we discussed, but there's, they're ultimately just one of many inputs into um, a comprehensive approach to surgical excellence. Um, examining the processes of healthcare, and um, it's so intriguing um, uh, that uh, Dr. Farouk opened uh, with a discussion of Codman, uh, examining process, um, his uh, ideas are codified in the activities of American College of Surgeons and all of the, uh, the quality improvement programs. Um, those uh, principles of, of optimizing process and outcomes come from industrial engineering, which is fascinating where you, you can optimize industrial processes by reducing variability. Um, that was at work of uh, W. Edward Deming uh, in the early, uh, in the mid 1900s. Um, and then industrial processes eventually made it into healthcare, uh, largely through the efforts of Vitas Don Abedian, who emphasized the importance of structure, process, and outcome. But still, what's missing from structure, process, outcome type analyses is the heart or, or the culture that, that drives this. And I think you can, you can strive to optimize a process, um, but um, it would be difficult unless you get the buy-in of the actual human beings um, the healthcare teams and the patients that, that uh, engage in those processes and fulfill those outcomes. And so um, there, it is important to map processes and to, be, to re reduce variability in processes and also to um, measure outcomes, but um, it still is only part of the inputs that you want into that system. Cost is also very important um, and um, uh, producing incremental changes in quality at high cost may not be in the best interest of society or public health. And so any effort to uh, drive uh, quality should balance that against uh, the cost of care. And then what is the experience of patients and providers in, the, in those systems? And so how do you get inputs of data um, into your system to inform the way that people experience their, their, their uh, lives? And I think in this age of uh, equity and inclusiveness, um, patient and provider, um, uh, reported uh, experience is more important than ever. We're increasingly also uh, concerned about planetary health and how healthcare impacts the, the planet. And so there's another input about what we do. Are we doing it in a most efficient way that's respectful of the environment and of the planet? And then all of these things or many of these th things can be uh, combined into the notion of value-based healthcare. This is a popular thing um, in Vancouver right now. We just had a, a symposium on value-based healthcare. Um, this work is uh, uh, based, uh, or this thought is based on some of the work of um, uh, Michael Porter. Um, and uh, this is a uh, article that he wrote in um, the Harvard Business Review about how to solve the cost uh, crisis in healthcare. Essentially what Porter says is that to, to solve the problem of sustainability in healthcare, we have to balance quality over cost. So M&Ms are primarily concerned with quality, but morbidity and mortality certainly have a cost, cost effect as well, which makes the, the, that type of thinking even more important. So um, Porter um, uh, has a sort of a construct about how you pursue value. How do you optimize the ratio of um, cost 
uh, sorry, of quality over cost. And the very first step in uh, optimizing uh, quality over cost is to organize into fundamental units. These are multidisciplinary units that are capable of not only measuring quality and cost, but actually acting on it. And so I'm just gonna jump ahead uh, from through this framework. Really the integrated practice units is the most important part of, um, of uh, Porter's model. And we actually built this into our mission statement that we wanna provide high value surgical care. That is care that optimizes the ratio of quality over cost. And so how do we do that? So we did create communities of learning or, um, or integrated practice units. The integrated practice units that, um, that Porter mentioned we took that to heart and we, we sort of deconstructed our division of general surgery um, into small agile um, uh, uh, integrated practice units or IPUs. Each IPU has a surgeon lead um, and each IPU is, we, we consider it to be like a small startup company. Um, it has its own business plan um, and it's, it's, uh, it's entrusted to uh, pursue this optimization of quality over cost. It's, we, we kind of realize, try to realize economies of scale by streaming data to all of these integrated practice units. And we ask each of these um, integrated practice units um, to, um, uh, uh, to uh, compile objectives and key results. So every one of these startup companies or these small integrated practice units develops a set of objectives uh, and key results. The, the objectives must be measured by quantifiable key results. Um, and so these, this is a sort of a, a deconstructed or a grassroots approach to quality where we actually um, uh, empower um, the, uh, the frontline providers, or in this case, the, the leaders of each integrated practice unit um, to, to pursue uh, the objectives that they care about most. So this isn't like a, a NISQIP benchmark, like a surgical site infection. This could be um, uh, recidivism and trauma, or it could be retransplantation and, and liver transplant. And so um, it suddenly becomes a more dynamic and interesting environment when people can pursue the objectives and key results they want. And as I mentioned, we provide them with dashboards um, so they can, uh, so we've basically worked closely with our quality and patient safety group to create dashboards. And here's, for example, a dashboard of our uh, liver transplant integrated practice unit that summarizes their four objectives and key results um, and provides them a real-time report of whether they're hitting targets for that quarter on that OKR. Um, and then more conventional NISQIP outcomes are listed below. But this is a place where people get to really define what constitutes excellence in their own integrated practice unit. Um, we can map their data temporally. Um, we can even provide them with costs. Um, here's a, you can see, uh, these are some of our analysts who are collecting costs on liver transplant. You can see right there, uh, variability in the cost per transplant. Uh, in, our, in our group. There's some variation in length of stay as well, seeing that the cost uh, variation probably comes from length of stay. All of these together go into a business transformation approach and ultimate pursuit of high reliability. We wanna create um, systems that uh, not only are just minimize um, variation at all expense, we wanna create resilient systems, systems that when a disaster happens, they identify it early, they minimize it, they reverse it, and they move on. And so creating this resilience or high reliability is a net effect of, uh, of this work. And the high reliability literature, literature is fascinating to read, um, but uh, really comes from um, high reliability organizations outside of healthcare. 
This is a, a graph that I really love. This is um, innovation over time in healthcare. And you can see there are waves of innovation that drive down patient mortality and improve uh, quality. The first wave, um, uh, they say, is tech technical advancements, things like laparoscopic surgery or improvements in anesthetic. The second wave is standardization, making uh, considering um, uh, healthcare processes to be industrial processes to, and try to minimize variation in best practices. And then the, 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 the third wave, the cusp where we're at now, I think we're sort of getting towards optimization and some diminishing returns of standardization is high reliability organizing. And this is again, um, embracing complexity um, uh, and being sensitive to, to uh, uh, operations and creating agile and, uh, and dynamic healthcare systems. Um, we talk a lot about diversity. Um, I'll just finish up by saying that um, I think we're increasingly understanding that surgical systems are complex. They may be surgeon led, but there's so many inputs into them as we've seen. And to try to, try to em embrace that complexity is an important uh, matter. And we know that in ecological systems, the more complex they are, the more resilient they are. So starting to kind of think through how to embrace complexity um, is an important idea. Um, and so we came across this notion of learning health systems, um, systems in which science, informatics, incentives, and culture are aligned for continuous improvement and innovation with best practices seamlessly embedded in the delivery of process and new knowledge. Um, and so that's kind of the model that we followed in, in our own work. So that's a learning health system. Um, it's got um, uh, an afferent limb of, uh, of data collection where we have a lot of data where we, Healthcare systems are increasingly awash in data. Sometimes where we fall short is in the implementation of actions to change, to achieve high reliability and to change culture. And I think that's the promise of a uh, learning health systems approach to, um, uh, to sur uh, surgical quality improvement. Um, so uh, finally, just a note on cultural safety. Um, uh, uh, and we're so grateful to Dr. Harris. Um, I cold emailed her one day and she allowed us to uh, uh, adopt some of her work into our own work um, on uh, learning health systems. And we had our first rounds uh, with the uh, cultural safety principles the other day, and that's very much part of our learning health system. So um, the, uh, the, the, the why is the mission and vision, value-based care, pursuing high va uh, values. The how can be learning health systems, and the what is uh, transformation of surgical care, cost and culture. So um, thank you very much uh, for this opportunity. Thank you so much, Dr. Hamid, for, uh, as usual, a very visionary talk. And, and the more I get to, to know you and, and talk to you, I, I realize that uh, if, I, if you're going to talk about a subject, I better be ready. I got to get my binoculars on so that we, I can see way, way far in the distance along with you. So thank you again uh, for, for sharing with us your vision. Um, uh, I have, there's, a, there's certainly some questions coming in through the chat box and uh, I encourage any of our listeners to, to fire off some, some questions as, uh, as you think of them and we'll try to answer them. Uh, but I had a question of my own for you, Dr. Hamid. Um, you know, this is a very complex, um, very nuanced, very uh, you know, impressive way of thinking about how we're gonna change um, surgery going forward and creating learning health systems. But one of, the, one of the things that I always find difficult to kind of reconcile is um, sort of the tension between individual responsibility and sort of the team or the system. 
uh, uh, you know, you, you brought up the the uh, the example of basketball teams. Let me let me push back a little bit and talk about MJ, right? So MJ, uh, you know, everybody's seen the now famous uh, Netflix documentary about MJ um, and how he kind of brought an incredible drive to each game and could literally motivate himself to get to the next level. Where it is, um, you know, how do you balance this tension between trying to build an amazing system with also uh, restoring some individual responsibility? Because I would argue that I think one of the historically important things about M&M rounds has been that it really, you know, made people think that like, you know, I don't want to stand up in front of my peers and have to defend uh, myself on M&M rounds. So how do you kind of reconcile those two tensions? Remember, uh, Amir, that uh, MJ um, couldn't win a title. Um, they couldn't beat the Pistons um, until he gave up the ball. Uh, so um, his coach, uh, Phil Jackson, uh, when he came, he said, MJ, you got to give up the ball. And so he said, uh, uh, you know, I I'm having like 60-point games. Why should I do that? Um, and when, But he said, OK, you know, you might be right. We haven't won the title despite everything, all my best efforts. Uh, and when, when he started to share the ball around the court, um, they started winning titles. Um, so, you know, uh, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're like, it's such a thoughtful question. Um, the, the, uh, we, we have a province-wide um, rounds um, every day, uh, every morning, um, you know about it, it's called the five and fives. We reviewed an article about surgical technique and surgical outcomes. And, it was interesting, they, they reviewed, they, they video reviewed these people doing right hemicolectomies, they rated them, and then they, they measured their outcomes. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly at all, um, the technical ability of a surgeon was uh, very much related to patient outcomes. And so we, sometimes when we do this broad systems thinking, we focus on things like the temperature in the room and glycemic control stuff, when, and we forget that there's such a thing as technical ability. So there is, there is a role for individual excellence in learning health systems, but I would say that it's a bit more nuanced than somebody just being excellent. Like how is that person excellent? Is it because they work in a system that continuous, where they're continuously learning from their peers, where they're doubling up with other attendings? Um, so in a very pure way, you could say surgical technique and individual excellence matters, but that individual does is embedded in a system and uh, their excellence really depends on what they learn, how they interact with between surgeons, with the broader healthcare team, um, and with the entire system. So, no question. I mean, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say that this is the key to surgical excellence is systems, but um, it, it that individual excellence isn't certainly an element of it. We have a question from the audience, uh, Dr. Hamid, uh, actually from Dr. McLean. Uh, Dr. McLean says, uh, Dr. Amit, great talk. What was wondering how you fund retrieving the key results uh, data for each of the subgroups in the division? Who gathers the data and how do you ensure its accuracy? And I think this is a super important uh, point because, uh, you know, this is, I think, one of the, the troubling and difficult things about M&Ms or, or quality improvement in general is that it's very difficult to collect this data. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's such a key point. That thanks, Tony. Um, so the uh, uh, this is a, uh, the learning health systems are very data data intensive. Um, now, I think um, in some ways, learning can just be making sure that the entire division is familiar with the literature, the best practices, that you have frequent rapid rounds to disseminate knowledge and reduce the latency between published literature and surgical practice. 
but in terms of measuring performance, you need a lot of data. And so we actually um, uh, partnered very closely with our NISQIP people uh, in our place is called Quality and Patient Safety. Um, and the NISQIP abstractors, they, they would send us reports with all of, you guys have seen those tables, super long tables with surgical site infection, superficial, deep, UTIs, et cetera. But our, our, our surgeons never took much interest in those measures. When you started asking those NISCOP abstractors to um, collect stuff on, you know, retransplantation rates or recidivism or what whatever was really important to the group, they started to love um, that that work. And so we're we're kind of repurposing our NISCOP abstractors to this work. And um, the organization, the hospital, has gotten behind us and actually funded three full time, uh, repurposed three full time NISCOP abstractors to the to the IPU model. There's so much more I could ask you about this, uh, Dr. Amit, but just in the interest of time, we'll move on to our next panelist. Uh, once again, I'm delighted to have Dr. Chelsea Harrison. She's already been set up by uh, myself and, and Dr. Hamid. And so, so everyone in the audience knows uh, that she's been making waves for sure. So I'm, I'm delighted to hear about uh, Dr. Harris's work on uh, cultural complications. So uh, welcome, Dr. Harris, thank you. Well, thank you all so much for having me. I'm delighted to be able to join and grateful for a virtual format because otherwise I would not be permitted by travel bans to come visit all of you. So it's wonderful. So I'm going to be talking about cultural complications, leveraging M&M to redefine medical error. Um, I have no financial interest uh, to disclose. However, before we dive in a bit deeper to the cultural complications curriculum, I think it is important to disclose the context that I bring to this work. Um, so as, all you, as you can all see, I am a white woman. I grew up in a small town in Vermont in an environment as showcased here by my high school yearbook um, that was about as homogenous as they come. I have no formal training in critical race theory, sociology, or any of the other relevant disciplines that this curriculum touches on. Um, and I really came to this work during the course of my general surgery residency when it became apparent that my gender was playing a larger role in my interactions with my patients, attendings, and staff than it ever really had in my conception of myself and in many respects in more ways than I wanted it to. Uh, thankfully, with the help of some excellent teachers and some very deliberate self-education, I have been able to expand my perspectives beyond gender and I've learned a lot, but I readily acknowledge that when it comes to discussing lines of difference, I often feel uncomfortable. I worry constantly that I'll say the wrong thing or the not quite good enough thing um, or that I'll make a mistake, uh, but I'm here to learn and to do better. And should I make any mistakes today, I welcome input on how I can improve. And I also include this disclosure for the people in the audience who may feel like they wanna be more involved in this space, but they don't know all the correct language or the data. And I encourage you, instead of waiting until you feel perfectly prepared, that you just begin and you learn as you go. So the fundamental question is, how does all of this relate to M&M? And I think that at the root of that is the question, does context contribute to medical error? And I think that there is ample evidence that in fact it does. Um, if you look across virtually every identity parameter, you will see that it contributes over and over again to disparities in healthcare. And I think that disparity in healthcare is in fact one of our most fundamental errors. Moreover, if you look at the provider experience, you can see once again, if you look across any line of difference that there's disparities in everything from the honors that we award to resident autonomy in the operating room, to gender differences in physician resources, startup packages, permanent leader position, basically every meaningful accomplishment you look at in a surgical career is impacted by identity. 
So as we began to recognize this concept, um, and members of my team began to wrestle with how could we intervene to improve the patient and the healthcare worker experience, we began to dial in on another fundamental question, which was why does diversity training fail? And as we began to reflect on our own experience and some of the literature that had been published primarily in the business sector, we began to identify some emerging themes. First, a lot of it is a just check the box online module, which everyone hates. I care deeply about this topic and my primary goal when I'm forced to do online DEI training is to click through as quickly as possible. And I think our, the, the crux of our hatred towards online modules is not that we are resistant to change, but that we can recognize that they lack authenticity. We are all savvy consumers and we can readily tell the difference between a genuine investment in culture and some thick box that an administrator has created for us. We also contend that the knowledge that online modules might confer is fairly transient. And the only thing that anyone remembers is how long it takes to complete them. Another issue is that example-based curricula can be alienating. I can't tell you how many cultural um, trainings I've attended that are aimed at a mixed group uh, across the hospital where every example of bad behavior uses a surgeon. Now, I'm sure that we've all seen examples of surgeons behaving badly in the wild, but when the whole training focuses on one person or one group as an aggressor, it's very easy to flip from a receptive context to a defensive posture and the message gets lost. And I think the same thing happens when we discuss any line of difference. Similarly, training often focuses on the extremes. While manifestations of overt sexism, racism, homophobia, et cetera, certainly occur, subtle displays of bias, such as failing to recognize a woman or a person of color as a physician, are actually far more common. And in many ways, these are harder to address because the person who is committing the offense often isn't aware that what they're doing is wrong. And the recipients often have to parse out whether actual discrimination is occurring or if they're just being sensitive. This can also make calling attention to behavior difficult um, because re recipients can feel like reporting will be seen as overreacting. And training that doesn't speak to this reality therefore misses a major aspect of the problem. Uh, DEI training, that is diversity, equity, inclusion training also often comes in single big chunks in the forms of annual retreats or seminars. And let's face it, it's hard to hold anyone's attention for a whole day or even a half day. And without constant reinforcement and re-education, it's hard to sustain change. Our experience has also been that these trainings are very rarely actionable. There may be a lot of awareness raising, but what to do next is often much murkier. Furthermore, if all of the strategies focus on those egregious events, those extremes that we spoke about, and these don't occur often, the training also loses a lot of its potency. Furthermore, as denoted in our very titles, much of the education focuses on trainees because our time is more accessible. And of course, it is important to train residents and students, but often culture is a top-down affair. And in the very hierarchical medical environment, the degree to which a department invites or promotes change often stems directly from the leadership. A leader who believes in this message can be a really powerful agent for improvement, but there are contexts where DEI isn't seen as particularly valuable. More broadly, I have found that in my own um, experience, voluntary DEI activities have a lot of preaching to the choir. That is, the people who already believe in the message and are doing the work are in the room, and the people who need to change the behavior or get this new information are nowhere to be found. So in simultaneously holding our conviction that clinicians cannot provide the standard of care without understanding patient context, and that a tremendous amount of diversity training does not meet the needs of the providers it seeks to inform, our breakthrough and our stroke of insight came in asserting that we needed to address instances of cultural breakdown with the same rigor that we applied to medical error. And with that, the idea for the cultural complications curriculum was born. 
Our idea, which you can learn about in more depth at our website, was that once a month, instead, in place of a standard medical or surgical complication, we would instead present an instance of cultural breakdown and discuss it in a similar fashion. To our minds, leveraging M&M was potentially really powerful because the format would be familiar to the audience and its rigor was widely accepted. The combinations of case presentations, didactics, and group discussions was ideal because it could raise awareness that DEI issues were neither abstract nor isolated to the ever-nebulous outside hospital, but a reality for the patients and providers on a daily basis in the room. The didactics we hoped would establish a shared scientific basis and the group discussion would help establish best practices. We also felt like M&M was an ideal forum because it could be longitudinal and because it was one of the few places where all levels of the departmental hierarchy from students to the chair congregated. So the foundation of the toolkit is a PowerPoint-based curriculum that introduces 12 core topics in DEI. We do seek to make it highly customizable to the individual uh, local environment. Each didactic session defines key terminologies, reviews foundational science, and where it exists, evidence-based response strategy. In an effort to reflect the reality of the science, each section includes an explicit acknowledgement of the presented data's shortcomings and the context in which the study's conclusions may not apply. Each module is fully scripted so that presenters require a minimal a priori uh, familiarity with a given topic, and we strive to make each presentation um, uh, deliverable in under 10 minutes. Like standard M&M, the heart of the curriculum are the cases. Um, we have a case bank on our website and in the individual PowerPoint presentations, and it includes hypothetical scenarios that draw from the contributor's personal experience, existing literature, and social media. We have purposely selected a wide range of perspectives and perceived levels of harm to avoid including only the most egregious examples. And we have several aims with this approach. First, by supplying a standardized case bank, we hope to avoid any of the accusatory overtones that may accompany um, specific instances were they to be discussed at your institution. Um, at the same time, we hope that by accurately reflecting how cultural complications manifest in everyday life, and by giving, people, um, giving people space to discuss similar experiences, it will raise awareness about the frequency of this kind of behavior and also establish a group consensus that this is not acceptable, decrease its overall incidence, and help the group develop strategies to better respond. So over the last year, we piloted this approach at both the University of Maryland and the University of Michigan. And in both the lead up to deployment and its actual delivery, we have learned a tremendous amount. Uh, so first, if you're someone somewhere towards the bottom of the hierarchy, as I very much was when I attempted to start this at my home institution, you need to find a local champion. Some eye rolling is inevitable. Not everyone will be a fan. However, a champion, particularly someone in a position of power and perhaps outside the standard go-to diversity leaders who can introduce the curriculum and lend backing, sends a strong message that this work is important and may help dampen some of the more vocal critics who could create a chilling effect on participation. This also speaks a bit to who should deliver these talks. Our pilot experience has demonstrated that inviting leaders in the department to give the first few sends a message that this is important. And then opening it up to residents and students sends a message that everybody can participate in this discussion. It is also important to know your gatekeepers and invite them in. Um, thanks to some really great clinical champions, the rollout at Michigan was fairly smooth. However, my experience was much rockier, uh, most notably when I opened up our inaugural session for questions. The first one I got was from one of the moderators asking, why was I wasting M&M time with this? Um, now, I'm happy to report that after a lot of work, the reception has warmed considerably. But I would encourage anyone who thinks that they might be facing a more skeptical audience to try to meet and seek out these individuals ahead of time, go over the curriculum with them, and try to make them part of your team. 
one of the mistakes that I had made early on was that I thought that notifying emails were enough and they categorically were not. You need to actually talk to people, put yourselves on their calendar and show them what you're planning to do and why. And if you don't, you risk moving what could have been a productive and private conversation into a very public and potentially destructive one. Um, our somewhat confrontational debut also taught me that you need to be able to adapt. Um, as I began to play catch up and work to better understand the opposition, one of the major critiques that came to light was that the curriculum focused a lot on the provider experience and M&M was supposed to be a time for patients. So I was able to say, okay, I can find more studies. I can focus the, the data in a new direction. I can shift the scenarios to center patients. And before the next session, I sat down with everyone, went over all of my slides, made all of the suggestions that everyone requested. Now, if I'm being perfectly honest, there are times in the darker and more exhausting times of residency where I wanna stomp my feet and yell that I should just be allowed to do it exactly the way I want to. Um, but if you're willing to bend to, if you're unwilling to bend um, to include your critics, you might be shut out entirely. And had I taken this approach, I would have missed a really important opportunity to expand the curriculum and make it applicable to more institutions. There are also a lot of less contentious ways that you need to be able to adapt to your organizational needs. At Maryland, some of the foundational concepts like implicit bias or microaggressions were fairly new to a lot of the audience. So we really needed to build a common knowledge base before we could effectively discuss the cases. In contrast, the surgery department at Michigan had been talking about these topics for years. So when they started, they actually found the didactic portion to be less useful and wanted to spend more time on the case discussion. With this in mind, that we give everybody the fully scripted curriculum, we encourage local leaders to adapt to their specific environments and to shorten or expand portions as necessary. You also have to be mindful about how you cultivate participation. Um, we recognize that jumpstarting discussions on thorny topics can be tricky. So to help, each case comes with some suggested prompts. Much like medical M&M, we include points regarding how individuals could have responded better, what they would hope to do differently in the future, as well as questions examining how the system needs to change to improve behavior. Um, I would suggest that early in deployment, for, particularly for anyone who thinks that they may be facing a more skeptical audience, Organizers may want to let people know what the prompts are going to be ahead of time. Um, and this is not necessarily to create a propaganda machine, but so that people can prepare their thoughts to jumpstart the discussion. Um, and particularly depending on how formal your M&M is, and particularly if you had an event like mine where the reception is a bit chilly, it can make people a bit reticent to speak up. So having departmental leaders who are prepared to talk at the early ones can help set a culture that will allow people to participate. It is also important to understand your ask. Um, unfortunately, academic medicine is not a very diverse place. So when you're talking about issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, the natural tendency may be to draw on the same people over and over again. And this repeat sampling is taxing in and of itself, the Lorax speaking for the trees. Um, but as we discuss on our modules and gender schemas, success in academia is often tied to conforming to agentic, white, male, hetero, cis norms. So asking, men, excuse me, asking members of your community highlight aspects of their experience um, or their identity that they may have actively tried to downplay can be unfair and in some environments unsafe. Furthermore, being expected to be the voice of your community over and over again can be extraordinarily difficult. As we continue to deploy the curriculum, we also have become acutely aware that we don't have all the answers. Um, one of the key questions that the Michigan experience in particular has highlighted is how can we holistically support our participants? Bringing up instances of discrimination in a public forum, asking people to tap into their trauma, and not always having great response strategies is a challenge. 20 minutes is not a lot of time, and some participants have felt that they've opened up painful wounds and then are expected to go right back to their clinical duties without a lot of follow-up. So we are still working on how best to 
uh, fix that, whether it's identifying faculty members who've expressed an interest in continuing the discussion offline, voluntary sessions in the evenings to pick the conversation back up, or perhaps everyone's favorite, online resources. Um, but I encourage everyone who wants to implement this curriculum to think about this process and try to integrate that into your deployment as well. One of the other issues that I personally have struggled with is how do you educate yourself or your group without pretending to speak for someone else? For example, we have a module on intersectionality, the idea that being a woman of color brings with it a set of compounding challenges that are different than, the, than those experienced by all women or just shared by people of color. Um, as I have explained, I don't really have an intersectional identity. So when it came time to present this module, I was worried about the line between raising consciousness about the concept and being the voice of someone else's oppression. So what I ended up doing was reaching out to members of my department and inviting them to engage to the extent that they wanted to. Um, and as I build new modules that continue to be more outside of my area of expertise, I try to get critiques from people with lived experience, a kind of nothing about us without us approach. But this once again does place the burden on, a, on the very people contending with bias, and it remains an area that I still feel a lot of trepidation in. So ultimately, the curriculum remains a work in progress, but we think that it can be a very powerful tool in helping departments learn, face their own shortcomings, and improve the environment they create for their patients and the providers. Um, it's currently freely available at our website and to date has been requested by um, over 170 departments, both in and outside of surgery and across several countries. Um, so we are very hopeful that this will help them take the first steps towards improvement. And with that, I will say thank you and invite any questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Harris, uh, for, for talking to us about uh, your experience. And uh, I can only imagine the, the courage that it takes, uh, particularly <laughs> as a resident, uh, to do what the work that you've done. So, so congratulations to, do, to you um, about all this. I'm curious, you know, so some of the, about some of the, the logistics of this. Like, um, you know, you talked about the fact that you held it at M&M Browns in the same time, same place, sort of the same format. Does it matter uh, the venue? Like, you know, like this is this is obviously a very, um, it's a different kind of discussion. And, and really a lot of what's happening here is playing into the broader conversations that were happening, that are happening within our society. So was, are there any key things that you did even uh, logistically, structurally within the room um, that, 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 are, that you found were really important uh, in doing this? Yeah, so I think the setting is really um, important. I, people will often ask, you know, can we just do this for the residents or can we just do this for the medical students? Um, and I think there's some amount of flexibility to take the time that you're given, but I really do believe that having this in M&M is a really important component of it because there's very few other places where you have all levels of the department coming together and that you have people who may not be getting this content in any other format. Um, I will say one of, I, I didn't go into it in today's presentation, but Zoom is actually offering some really unique um, and new opportunities for this curriculum. Um, I think it gets rid of some of the, um, the trepidation people may have in raising their hand and saying, yes, this happened, something like this happened to me, that you have some anonymous functions. It allows people to ask questions to the moderator that they maybe didn't feel all that comfortable asking in a format, um, which requires some finesse on the part of the moderator. Um, but I think really gets through some of the, the first step barriers of people participating in this sort of thing. And as we get more sophisticated in integrating polling functions to say, you know, how, what percentage of you have felt something like this, I think 
really helps overcome this idea that this is not an us problem. You know, we, we are nice and we treat everybody the same um, when in reality, it's an, every, it's an everyone problem. And even if you're good in one category, you know, as I tried to highlight when I started, like I knew a lot on the gender stuff. I knew very, very little on sizeism or ableism or many other things. And I really had to educate myself on those things. Uh, Dr. Kortbeek, uh, who's one of the faculty in, in Calgary, asks um, if there were, uh, are, are sort of our adopting departments using primarily cultural complications as is, or are they uh, tweaking it significantly, or are there other examples of, of things that people have done with the curriculum um, uh, that you've seen kind of rolled out? Yeah, so I think we've gotten a couple of different feedback. We are um, actively trying to survey this. Um, it sort of exploded a little bit faster than I was prepared for. So I'm trying to retroactively fit a survey component as part of it. Um, I think it depends on where the department was to begin with. So I think places that have been doing this work for a while are modifying it a bit more and they're really just using the cases. Um, but for example, um, MD Anderson adopted it and they didn't, they were sort of where Maryland was in terms of understanding some of the um, exact terminology and they used it as is. So I think it's really kind of what your department brings to it. Um, and we, we really want it to be as adaptable as you need it to be. Dr. Harris, thanks again. Uh, and uh, hopefully we can have um, uh, some discussion at the end of the, the, the session as well and get some more questions from the, the uh, panelists and, and the participants. Uh, but I'd like to, in the interest of time, just move to Dr. Finley's presentation. Um, so Dr. Finley, uh, take us away. As I'm sitting up there, Dr. Harris, that was amazing. Um, I will happily adopt that and be your local champion. So I, th I think whoever that was that shot you down um, is gonna be on the wrong side of history. And I was a bit reminded of, um, um, I once saw a hundred year old physician present um, and he talked about all the things um, that had changed in his lifetime. And he was talking about, um, here, let's see if this works. Uh, he was talking about, is this working? Can you guys see it? Anyways, he was talking about all the things that changed, immunization, antibiotics, and he put up the whole list. And he looked up and he said, I was against them all. Um, and, you know, I sort of think that that is sort of telling sometimes when you get resistance that you've hit on the right thing. So, all right. So um, what I would say is I have nothing to declare. Um, and um, A lot of what I was going to speak to has been spoken to beforehand, but I will try to editorialize as, as I go about my perspective on data. Um, you know, I'm a third generation thoracic surgeon. My grandfather was a thoracic surgeon. My dad's a thoracic surgeon. I'm a thoracic surgeon. And I have my grandfather's operative reports from the 1940s where he was doing one of the first pneumonectomies in Canada. Um, and he does it through, he was doing it through the eighth intercostal space, which is about two spaces too low, maybe three. Um, he uh, does it backwards. So he took um, vein bronchus artery. He sutured the pulmonary artery with chromic gut. Um, and at the conclusion of his operation, he says, no, I don't think that this was the easiest way to do this operation. And clearly he was giving a message to himself on next time, don't do this. Um, and I think that's really what we do as surgeons to each other when we're teaching. I think that's what you do when you read a textbook. And I think that's what we do in M&M rounds is in its best format, you show what's happened, either something really severe or something really common. 
you review what's the best out there and you try to make sure the next patient does better. Um, and I think that we all, when we're uh, participating in the successful M&M rounds, we know that. But I think as has been you know, elucidated, so many times either the data isn't good or the participants aren't engaged or the outputs aren't what they could be. And I think that that's what, what I'm, I'm hoping to speak to both um, in general, but also specifically with regards to data. So I think it's really about quality improvement, about breaking down those silos. Um, but I also think it's about fostering that sense of community. And, and I, I've heard it said by Dr. Harris and others that, you know, if the chair is for it, everybody gets on side or, or a local champion. And if, and if people are out there sniping it, um, it's, it's, you know, in trouble. And so um, I went in a Vancouver General Hospital when I came back from my MPH at Harvard, I presented on uh, surgical timeouts um, before it was presented in the New England Journal and before it was anything, and I got eviscerated. Um, and um, I think that, that we need to take those opportunities to take those new ideas in and to foster that sense of community because um, it's, it's amazing the ideas that, that, that can come out because there's real costs, both human and, and financial. Um, and there's you know, innumerable papers that try to quantify how expensive it is to have a run of atrial fibrillation, how, how expensive it is to have a wound infection, but suffice it to say, it's a lot. Um, and, and the lower uh, complications you can have, the better you do. Um, I liked uh, the, when Dr. Hamid was talking a bit about uh, technical prowess, and I think that um, you know, I've seen that reproduced in bariatric surgery, thoracic surgery, general surgery, where clearly, um, like anything, there are people who are very good at their jobs. But I would contend that there's a lot more to it about everything else wrapped around the person, that the Amir Gaffrey paper in the New England Journal talked about um, high mortality and low mortality hospitals having the same complication rates, but it's really your ability to rescue a patient that that minimizes the, the downstream trauma. And I think that that's what we're talking about with complications is both minimizing the chance of them happening, but also the team wrapping around the patient to minimize those errors. You know, I think that they do need to be regular and scheduled. You know, it's certainly any time in my life that I've tried to do things like going for a beer with a friend or going for a run, um, they seem to fall apart when I leave myself the opportunity to do it PRN. Um, and so I think that it needs to be put in a schedule and, and held to that schedule. I do think the data, which I'll get to in a second, is fundamental. And I think that we all want to have NISQIP or, or some really comprehensive, systematically captured data that somebody else does. Um, um, but in reality, there are a lot of good sources of data that are cheap and available. And I think that administrative data sets has its uses. I think that pathology has its uses. I think that even anecdotes have their uses, but you need to make sure that you get data and, and not just one source of data, but have an open mind to all the potential useful sources of data, whether they be really high level or really low level. I do think that you need to go through them in a structured format. Um, and I, need, I do think you need to have um, specific outputs that are written down and circulated. I know M&Ms are the ultimate audit feedback system. And if you don't write something down and disseminate it to people with a specific action plan, then the chances of it becoming something are much lower. I do think that you need to mandate attendance. Um, you know, I've certainly again participated where, where, as has been said before, all the people that you want to be there that could learn the most aren't there. And all the people that, are, that, that even if they don't know how to be culturally competent are at least gonna try, show up. And so it's, it's to some extent, it, it speaks to the team leadership to, to really make sure that everybody shows up. And I think that um, M&Ms can be broadened beyond 
um, the one institution. You know, I think that when you when you work in a, a practice that has two physicians, two general surgeons, four general surgeons, six general surgeons, you've probably heard each other's stories pretty quickly. Um, you know, if you don't have uh, residents and medical students to reinvigorate it, um, by bringing in the respirologists, frost thoracic surgeons, the anesthetists, the nurses, um, partnering up with um, a, a spoken hub model with other institutions gives different opportunities. In, in thoracic surgery, as I'll speak to in a second, we have created a national database. So we capture the same stuff in Hamilton's that they capture in Vancouver's, they capture in Ottawa. Um, and you can make the same thing from NISQIP, but we do regional and national um, rounds. And so we have positive deviance rounds that are not defined to a single institution. And I think that that has been very powerful for us. We've One, we've done it in a positive format. And so it's positive deviance. We celebrate the best, though we show all the data and you know who you are. But I think that also it allows you to look between institutions and that natural sen sense and desire to, to improve pulls you up. Um, Ottawa has, has really gone through and has a quite nice documentation on, um, on a newer approach to M&Ms and clearly they went through some soul searching. And I think it's worth a good read um, for those that are interested in the subject as, as a good way of thinking about it. And so I pulled our M&M rounds um, um, off my email. So our M&M rounds are generated from our national database. Um, we employ a half time FTE person to capture all the data for the biggest thoracic center in Ontario. Um, and it, it automatically populates our M&Ms and it has made our M&Ms incredibly more powerful. We instantaneously know what our conversion rate is, what type of minimally invasive versus open operations we're doing, um, the elective versus emergent operations. We know our complication rate overall. We know uh, multiple complications to the same person. We know high grade and low grades. So we quantify our, our, in a Clavian Dindo scale, our complications and, and we do nationally as well. And so you know how many low grade and high grade complications. You can uh, compare that to historic norms and you can drill down on specific you know, pulmonary complications, um, mucus plugging. You can go down to gastric complication, diarrhea. You know how often it happens and how we do relative to our peers nationally and regionally, as well as uh, case adjusting. We've pulled out and identified what we think are key variables that we need to keep an eye on. Prolonged air leak, readmission, return, unplanned OR, unplanned ICU. And if we have a blip, if we have a signal to our noise, or if we're different than our peers, then we discuss that. So we discuss all grade five, which are deaths, all grade four, which are to return to the ICU, and anything that has become above historical norm. So that is how we quantify our M&Ms. But you can do that with NISQIP. You can do that even with administrative data sets. Administrative data sets are very good at capturing uh, critical care bed usage, death, obviously, length of stay, and all those things are useful things to, to talk about. They're not particularly, administrative data sets aren't particularly good at capturing complications, and that's where I think something like NISQIP is better. And I think a disease site specific database like we have is even uh, superior to that in capturing really that robust data. But coming out of that, we make sure that we, we look at uh, patient factors, provider factors, system factors, and then we have specific recommendations which are distributed. Um, and we follow up on them at our business meeting. So um, we, we try to make sure we have action items from our, each of our M&Ms and then circle it all back. Um, and we have noticed a, a, a reduction in our complication rate associated with this. And certainly uh, when we did trials, when um, Ottawa, which led this for us nationally, did trials, it showed a statistically significant reduction in atrial fibrillation, prolonged air leak, and anastomotic leak by just doing a, a, a positive deviance 
um, and seeing how they progress with time. So I do think M&Ms can be quantitatively impactful on patient care. Um, and we've tried to replicate and have replicated their work and are trying to do that nationally. You know, I wrote a, um, um, a white paper really looking at resource risk, high risk intensive cancer surgery and showed that in Canada, your chances of dying for an, op uh, dying for an operation can be double or triple um, depending upon the institution and province you live in. But I think that, that equally importantly, the flip side is that is your access to care is also um, uh, dependent on where you live and, and where you go. Um, and when we look internationally, so I also am on the International Clinical Benchmarking Trial, um, Canada lags in a number of different disease sites and how we're doing. We're improving, but we're certainly not the best. Um, and you might say, okay, well, we're near the top. We're doing reasonable compared to all these single-payer centers. Fine. But each of these green dots is a province in Canada. We have a bigger difference within our country than they have internationally um, on outcomes for cancer surgery. Um, and you could, you could extrapolate this to anything. I have the numbers for institutional MIS rates for colorectal cancer, showing that your chances of getting an MIS colon uh, vary from 0% um, up to a national average of about 70%, depending upon the institution you live in, that your re-excision for breast cancer, if you have a breast cancer lumpectomy, um, can vary from um, an incredibly low number to seven times that, depending upon where you live. Um, and so all of those things are worthy of discussion. And I think an M&M is a great spot for them and that data is available. Um, and to go back to my previous point, it matters that, that when we look at who lives from cancer, um, it depends on who gets access to curative surgery. And if you don't have the same access to care um, uh, and it's directly attributable to, to how we deliver care um, is, is very impactful. And I do think we tend to focus a lot on outcomes and part of the other conversation should be access to care, that, that we are the single best way of curing people from cancer um, as surgeons and that we need to make sure that we are at the table and advocating for it. And if our local results aren't, aren't there, we need to, to, to use that. And I think something that, that, that data is very powerful for. And so just to, to show you that um, each of those is a province in Canada and the five-year survival is directly professional to um, resection rate for lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, colon cancer, all across our country. So that, that we have variability that requires attention um, and that we can benefit our patients for that. Th this is data that is accessible to all of you. If you just go down to your um, uh, little people down in the basement and ask them for, to extract some data for you, this is the, the readmission rate. Um, um, but it, suffice it to say, two thirds of our patients come to our hospital, but one third of them go to a different hospital and that our readmission rates can vary by 50% depending upon where you live. And so we have, again, a single payer system. We have reasonable health, uh, home care. A lot of people come back into the hospital, almost 15% after major surgery. Um, and often they go to another center. And in some of the research we've done, the chances of dying is actually quadruple if they go to their non-index center. So you know, I think all of these things are data that is at our fingertips that are worthy of conversation. And those complications, so this is a blowout of the complications uh, of people, uh, of the reasons people go to the emergency department who get readmitted, almost all of them are directly attributable to their operations. You know, some of them um, uh, are unrelated, but most of it is pneumonia if you're a thoracic surgeon, urinary retention if you're a prostate surgeon, and um, uh, bowel concerns. And then also that people die after they leave the hospital. Our, our mortality for for uh, major cancer surgery in Canada has dropped by 50% in the last decade, which is, a, which is laudable, but that our post-discharge mortality is now 
over what our in-hospital mortality is, that you're more likely to die after you leave the hospital within 90 days than you were in the hospitalization. And we have not improved that at all. So I think that that's the next um, uh, bridge to cross for, for us is that our care does not stop at the doors of the hospital. Our care extends out there. And I do think that the M&M should have that comprehensive both pre and post. So we developed standards uh, that I think that that speak to this. And part of those standards really talk about that, that continue the data collection and continuous quality improvement is really something that we as surgeons do and that our techniques are going to change with time. And we need to evaluate ourselves so that when the next um, MIS, the next robot, the next poem, the next whatever comes along, we need to, to be pushing that envelope, but we also need to be seeing how we're doing and discussing it. And so I think that you do need to continuously capture your data and talk about it and have it systematically evaluated. And so, you know, looking with all the national societies, we put out very recently these Pan-Canadian Action Plan on optimizing surgery. And yet again, um, Pan-Canadian benchmarking and, uh, and data-driven quality improvement, I think are fundamental um, to where we're going in the future. And I think it's, it's something that we need to do, that we need to prioritize. It doesn't pay, it tends to go after hours, we're tired. You know, if you don't have residents to do it or other data abstractors to do it, it, it can be problematic and, and, and we don't want to have the point where it is um, um, thrust upon us. And I do think it's something that, that we need to do for all the reasons that have been discussed today. So I'm going to leave you with um, John Cleese. Um, and he was talking on a TED talk about what it takes to be creative. And I think that you could say the same thing for, for quality. In this case, M&Ms, that you need space, you need time, you need to give your brain the ability to think about the problem and actually give it, not just push for it. You need to have confidence that you're going to do it. And then you need to go out with humor because I do think that we have a very serious business and it can be completely overwhelming. Um, but I do think that, that our, our culture of surgery is actually very supportive of each other. Um, and, I, and that it's, you know, one of the reasons I miss CAGs and I miss CATs is I miss my friends. I miss seeing people and sitting with them after, you know, between sessions or at sessions, talking about things and talking about those complications, talking about those challenges. And I think that, that in, its, in its best form, that's what M&Ms are for. So I would put it back to you, although I, I was gonna somehow crack a joke about on the bottom of Dr. Hamid's slide on, you know, he had the best coach, on the bottom was Brett Brown, who had the absolute worst, like he just, he seemed to lose almost everything. Um, and had a very short career. So I think the next time in M&Ms, we can talk about Brett Brown. Thank you so much, Dr. Finley. Uh, as usual, a fantastic uh, talk. And uh, I just love, love listening to you and, and love listening to the way, the way you think about things. Um, so, you know, I have a, a few questions for, for everyone. And I know we're, we're kind of getting towards the end of, of the session tonight. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, but I, I will pose a couple of questions to you, Dr. Finley. So uh, one, the one thing that's been interesting from hearing all, everyone speak today is just that uh, so much attention to the, the, the system-wide culture and really thinking about the system and how we improve the system. Do, how, how do individual M&M cases factor in? So, you know, there's, there's a bad outcome. You have to take someone back. Are those cases that you actually discuss or are you... Um, when you're doing your M&M rounds, just looking at the, the statistics or the data uh, and how do those two things intersect? Because, you know, I, I do wonder um, about where that role is for actually putting some education or some, some uh, attention on the individual again and, 
and seeing how we can improve as individuals uh, as opposed to just looking at the numbers across the system. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Like I do think that all significant and frequent problems should be discussed. You know, I think that, that and I, I like having metrics like NISQIP where you can see how you're doing relative to your peers. Um, because if you're waiting for deaths, it, it happens very infrequently. You know, the mortality even in really bad operations is quite low. And so if you're looking for a signal on mortality, it's not gonna happen. So I, you know, I think that you need to talk about those. But I do think that you, you have to keep your eyes out for things that you can do better, modifiable factors, um, have the humility to discuss them. Um, and it's really hard. And, and um, you know, we try to not pick on people. Like I think in the spirit of ethos, we try to look at those positive examples as well, but, but it's, um, we're sometimes sensitive to the, the, the morale of the group if it isn't critically important to discuss. Um, but I do think that you need to, to, to dig into those difficult conversations and give yourself the time to do it. You know, I, I, I hate when, when you spend the first 90% talking about something inconsequential like the MIS rate, though that might be consequential in a different context, then you have something really important and awful to discuss. And, you, and, and the OR starts at eight and you start discussed at 7.45. Like it's just, you have not left it sufficient space, which is why I tried, I tried to talk about it. So I, I do think that when there's important things to talk about, you should flip it on its head um, and start with the important things um, and not get bogged down in the process. Because in so much, so much time there's, there's um, um, showmanship or, or um, pomp and circumstances of the crescendo to the conversation. And in reality, you just need to give the time. So I think that you need to be sensitive to that. I do you want to pick up on one, one aspect of your talk also um, that I was hoping you could expand upon, which is sort of the positive deviance rounds. How do, how do those positive deviance rounds work for those of us uh, who haven't seen them? Because uh, it just sounds like a fantastic idea. Yeah, so, so we'll present, so anonymized institution or, or pr practitioner data and say, who's got the best AFib rate? You know, so it's a waterfall plot. Um, and with everybody's consent, we will unmask the best person or the best couple people and say, what are you doing? Like, oh, I always correct the magnesium of the patient. Um, I'm, I'm really aggressive about doing minimally invasive surgery because that's been shown to have less AFib and I do blank. And then we have a, a conversation and we've usually prepped the, uh, to have a talk on the evidence uh, behind atrial fibrillation. And so you talk about the evidence, we show our results, we show the best person, they talk about their things, we come up with specific recommendations that are then cycled to everybody and have a conversation. And in our particular model, those are then done across the country at different institutions. We collate them and then we do a national meeting about the same topic, um, uh, with atrial fibrillation. And so everybody's talking about it locally and then you see which institution's doing the best and then they talk about it and then we measure. So it's actually, it's a very fun way to do it. it you know, it, there's, it can't, you can't solve all problems that way. You know, it, you know, if you have to discuss a really bad outcome, you have to discuss a really bad outcome, but um, it's, a, it's a nice way to frame it positively, al allow that building up of people. And it, it, interestingly, it's never the same person. Um, and it's never the same institution. And, you know, it's the same when I did my report cards. I, I'd start out saying, you're bad at some things, you're good at some things, let's talk about it all. Um, and it's the same of this. So it's, it's so nice that, you know, our, our best length of stay was different than our best AFib, which was better than our best anatomic leak. And so everyone got their moment to shine in the sun. Um, and, and it allowed for that evidence-based conversation. It really sunk in because it was personal. That's fantastic. Um, 
once again, I'm, I'm uh, conscious of the fact that uh, we're, we're over time here, but I did want to uh, ask Dr. Harris uh, a, a sort of a final question on this, uh, you know, and this is a sort of a two-parter. The first is uh, you, you did talk a little bit about your response, uh, but I'm curious about how things have evolved, especially since you, you know, you shifted from your work uh, in Michigan uh, back to your home institution, what that response has been like. And, and my second part uh, question to that is that you, you, know, you started off with a curriculum um, of general cases, but you know, in the spirit of M&M rounds, do you ever think that there will be a role for actually discussing real institutional problems like, uh, or using real examples of things that have actually happened? Um, and how do you see that playing out? Or do you think that uh, maybe that's not a wise way of approaching this? Sure, so I'll, I'll briefly touch on both of those. Um, so one, I will say one of the things that have been that has been most encouraging to me is that the reception to this changed tremendously. Um, and so even the the person I spoke about who called me out at the beginning, um, I had been away at one of our partner institutions for a couple months. And so I had paused a little bit and he sent me an email saying, when are we going to restart this? I think it's really important. And I've had people, you know, attending. So you came, came up to me and said, you know, when you first started this, I thought I was kind of fluffy and kind of nonsense, but you know, I've seen it and I think this is starting to be important. And one of the other parts that's been um, an important learning aspect for me was we still don't always have the most robust conversation in the room, but I see that people are having these conversations in shared spaces or having the conversations around the, the cases at the start of the OR or in the downtime and that um, people really are taking some of the message and thinking about how it relates to their own experience or their trainees experience or, um, you know, are becoming better advocates for one another. So I think that um, all of the learning and all of the progress doesn't necessarily happen at the, that specific M&M, but it opens the door to being more receptive to this. Um, the second part, we get asked this question a lot about should you um, present from actual experience. And I will say, I have yet to participate in one of these where someone hasn't raised their hand and said, oh, this happened, this, something like this happened to me in this respect, or here's the aspect. So I think having this, this standardized case doesn't really matter all that much because they're meant to be so recognizable that it resonates with people's experience. And that, that way it takes away the perpetrator. So you don't have the, you know, this doctor said this to the, you know, the trainee and everyone's trying to figure out who it was that said it um, rather than focusing on it. You can say, this is kind of the, the standard and the people say, oh yes, I, ha I had that this week or I had that last week or I, I witnessed this and I didn't know what to say and what would have been better, um, you know, like if you're in clinic and, and someone says something inappropriate to the resident. I was the attending and I didn't know what to do. We have, you know, things like that, that you, you don't necessarily, I think not having the exact specifics doesn't detract from it at all. Um, but certainly people like when we, we presented this at University of Alabama and they wanted to, um, excuse me, at UT Houston, um, and one of their medical students um, had an experience that he wanted to share and he wanted to discuss. And so that also gives people an opportunity to process some of the more traumatizing things um, that may have happened to them and, and help maybe help get some resolution as well. So I think once again, you can really customize it to your individual departments and needs. Well, uh, I was overjoyed to have uh, both all of you on the session. Dr. Hamid had to, had to leave a bit early so we couldn't ask him any more questions, but thank you once again uh, for joining us today. And thank you again to the Canadian Association of General Surgeons for allowing us to put on this session. 
and uh, uh, have a good evening and everyone stay safe. Thank you. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.